If you have your Bibles, would you please open to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, New Testament, 2 Timothy comes right after 1 Timothy. Very good, right? It is the third chapter in uh, that book. Okay, And we are starting, as you're turning there, I'm just going to tell you that we are here in our Bible Engagement Project. This is the 10th volume of Bible Engagement. This is the final volume of our Bible Engagement. We've gone through 10 different volumes of Bible Engagement, about three to four messages each time. We've averaged about 30 messages over the course of the last 10 months by the end of this month. Today we are looking at volume 10, session number one. We're specifically looking at Paul and Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. Our faith verse has changed, so we are having a different faith verse for the next few weeks. It is the last verse that we're going to be posting on our Etch-A-Sketch, and it comes out of Philippians 3.14 that says, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Paul wrote that in the book of Philippians, and he says, I press on to reach the end of the race. And receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Can I just say this to you before we move on? It's important that you start strong. It's more important that you finish strong. A lot of people start something. Few people finish. If you don't believe me, come to my house. I have many started projects and very few incomplete or very few finished projects. In fact, the list of projects I need to complete is far longer than the projects I need to start. Some of you understand what I'm talking about? Don't look at your spouse. Don't point fingers at them and nudge them. You know what I'm talking about. This is something that we are as people very, very prone to consider. It's more exciting to start new things. It's more interesting. It gets our attention more quickly. It's new. It's exciting. Paul's speaking to the church in Philippi, and he's teaching them something very specific based on his own life experience and his own personal conviction, which is what? I press on to finish strong. I'm not just making a decision to have an encounter with Jesus Christ like he did at this point over 20 years before he wrote this. I'm not just going to... Begin the journey strong. I'm going to finish this journey strong. I'm going to run the race to receive the heavenly prize. What is he saying there? I'm not just in the race to participate, guys. I'm in the race to win. You can tell, right? When somebody's just going through the motions versus when someone's in it to win it, there's a difference in their mindset. There's a difference in their conviction. There's a difference in their desire and their heart. You can see it in the way that they engage. Paul's not just telling us to finish the race. Hey, barely cross the line. Do everything you can in Jesus' name just to get off. He's like, no, run the race as if you are trying to win the race. Why? Because there is a heavenly prize that Jesus Christ is calling, and there is a reward on the other side. You don't run the race to receive receive the reward. We have already received the reward in knowing Jesus Christ. We run the race to win it as an evidence of what Christ is doing in our lives right here and right now. Does that make sense? It should be an overflow of what's happening in our lives today. That's what he's saying. The way that we run the race on this side of eternity is very much an indicator of what God has been doing in our hearts. So press on, finish strong, don't just start strong. So we're in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. And I want to ask you a question before we read this passage. Okay, if you found out, you walked out of the doors of the church today and you found out that today or tomorrow or this week would be the last day, week, or month 
on, on earth. Tomorrow would be your last day. This week would be your last week. This month would be your last month on earth. What words would you need to say to someone? What things would you want to communicate to the people around you? If you knew your time was coming to a close shortly, what words would you choose to say? I'm not asking you to respond. I just want you to reflect on it just for a moment. If someone told you 24 hours from now, you will no longer be alive on this earth, what words would you need to get out and communicate to other people? What are those last words that you would have to say? Here's something I do know, and I don't know what you would directly say, but I do know that something that you would say would be very intentional and it would be very important to someone. I don't think the last words that you would say is, go birds. (laughs) If it is, you need to rethink your priorities. I just don't think that would be your priority. I don't think a lot of the things we think are important would be our priority in that moment. Do you understand what I'm saying? I really think what it would be is something intentional that we would look at individuals, we would talk with people, our words would make sense, our words would matter, they would have intentionality, they would have meaning because they would be some of the very last words we would ever say. I'm sharing this with you because this is kind of what we're reading in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to give you a little background before we read this, but it's important for you to understand. 2 Timothy was the last book the Apostle Paul wrote before he was killed. At this point in Paul's life, he's been a minister of the gospel for over 30 years. He came to a relationship with Jesus, and he talked about that last week in the conversion of Saul to Paul. He's gone on three or four missionary journeys. He's traveled over 10,000 miles over the course of the last 30 plus years. He's been beaten, he's been abused. He's been persecuted. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times, the scriptures say, when he talks about it. He's been abandoned by close friends. He's been persecuted. And 30 plus years later, he writes from prison in Rome. Now, the first time he was in Rome, he was under house arrest. This time, he's actually in prison. And his time is getting short, and he knows his time is getting short. And what history shows us is that underneath the Caesar, or the emperor, he was decapitated. His head was cut off for the sake of the gospel and what he did. And that's how Paul ultimately dies. He knows his time is coming very, very short, and he writes this letter to Timothy. It's the second letter to Timothy, hence 2 Timothy. Timothy was a young boy. A young man, a teenager, when Paul first really met him, and he spent years of time pouring into Timothy and speaking and teaching words of life into Timothy. And there's instances and evidences of that through Acts and Timothy that you can see how their worlds connected over many, many years. So I want you to hear before we read this that he's not just writing a letter to a church. He's not just writing a letter to some faraway place where he has limited relationship. He is handwriting a letter to a young man who is now a little bit older, who he has poured decades of his life into, knowing that his very own life is coming to an end soon. Do you think his words will carry weight? Do you think he's thinking about the intentionality behind what he's saying? Absolutely. So I want you to think about that as we read this together, beginning in verse 10, as Paul is talking to Timothy. These are some of Paul's last words before he gives his life up for Christ. He says to Timothy, you... However, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, 
endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me? In Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Okay, see what he's saying? You know all about my history, Timothy. You've heard it, you've seen it, you've watched it. And then look what he says in verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. How about we preach on that verse today? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Who is he talking about here? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. I'm not making this up. This is true. He says here, if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. If you're living a godly life and everyone in the world around you is your best buddy and friend, something wrong, and it's not them. You can have friends that don't know Jesus. Jesus was a friend to sinners. But if there's no persecution going on in your life in some way, shape, or form, something's wrong. And Paul's saying, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Look what he says in verse 13. Yet, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now look what he says to Timothy. Like he's giving this wisdom and he's imparting in verse 14. Look what he says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those who you've learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that every servant or that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God, open our hearts to this word this morning. May we not just be reading words on a page, but may it really penetrate our hearts and may we be challenged to speak truth, to hear truth, and to draw closer to you with an attitude of obedience and response. In your name we pray. Amen. Paul could have talked about anything he wanted to. His time was short. He was writing his letter to Timothy. In fact, later on, he actually tells him, bring some parchments, bring some of the scrolls, because even while Paul was in prison, he was a student. Even while Paul was in prison, he was a student that learned, that was completely doing what he could to be a follower of Christ and to walk in relationship with Christ. Even while Paul knew that death was on the doorstep, he continued to finish strong and run that race to receive the prize. He could have talked to Timothy about anything, but you know what he focused on? He focused on discipling Timothy. He could have told him, Timothy, I've loved you as a son, and God bless you, and I wish all these great things, and and you know those scrolls that you saw me for the last 20 years carrying around? I leave them to you with love, and I just want you to be so happy in where you're going. No, he doesn't. He warns him, and then he instructs him. He warns him, and he instructs him with a challenge. And what was his challenge? Continue in what you have learned. How are you supposed to continue in what you've learned and been convinced of? Because he saw it modeled by Paul. He read it in God's word. It wasn't just what he heard, it's what he saw. And what he said was, make the faith that's in you continue to flourish and grow because I modeled it for you. I want you to continue to live it and give it away to other people as well. Discipleship is the most important thing. I think it's also because in Matthew 28, Jesus made it one of the last things he talked to his disciples about before he left the earth. In Matthew 28, 
What you see him say to his disciples in verse 18, Jesus says, it says, then Jesus came to them and he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I grew up thinking the command was to go and that this was a call and a scripture for me to be evangelistic. Be evangelistic, be evangelistic, share the gospel everywhere you go. And there's an element to that of truth, but the actual language is not a command to go. The imperative is to make disciples. The actual wording is, as you go, make disciples. Therefore, as you live, make disciples. Therefore, as you study, make disciples. Therefore, as you work in your business, make disciples. Therefore, as you attend a local church, make disciples. Therefore, as you go to school and you play in the marching band or, the, or, the, or the, um, you play in the jazz band or you're on the football team or the soccer team, make disciples. As you live in this world, make your eyes and your ears focused on one thing only. Make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What he's saying here is not just go evangelize. He's saying, whatever God has called you to be, whoever he's called you to be. And listen, I think we overprogram that sometimes. I think, and I've said this before, I'll say it again. There's a whole generation of students right now that are confused because they're waiting for God to tell them that one thing they need to do for their life. It's nonsense. God does speak to us at times and call us to specific things at specific times, but he calls us to know him and he calls us to make him known. He calls us with gifts and abilities. He calls us with strengths and purpose. And what he says is, if you make me, like the Psalm 34 verse that was read about, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, if you make me the center of who you are, if God becomes the core of my life and I think about Jesus and I want to honor Jesus with my eyes and my ears and my finances and my tongue, if I make him the center of my life, wherever I go, he takes leadership in. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to make disciples. You don't grab Jesus and add him on to your life by coming to a service or a community group. No, Jesus goes with you. No, Jesus directs you. Can I put it in country terms? Jesus takes the wheel. You know what I'm talking about? Because I can't do it on my own. I'm not going to try to sing like that because I don't want to embarrass Carrie. Some of you are thinking, what is that song? Look it up. Jesus, take the wheel. You know what? You'll get saved if you haven't just by listening to that song. It's trite. But what did we sing about in our worship this morning? I surrender all. I surrender all. What are we saying? The core of who we are. If the core of who we are is to know God, to love God, and to be a follower of Christ, wherever we work, we make disciples doesn't matter if you work in a church. doesn't matter if you work in a corporation. doesn't matter if it's your own business. You're a teacher. You're a cop. It doesn't matter. You bring Jesus wherever you go because he is the center of who you are. I bring Jesus where I am because he's the center of who I am. So when they say go into the world, he's not saying just go. I have no problem going. Our whole society has no problem going. We are so busy all the time. He's saying as you go, represent me. As you go, be my hands, be my feet, be my mouth. Be my wallet. Be my calendar. Everywhere you go, make disciples of all people. And the most important thing why I think this is the case is because 
This is the greatest inheritance we could ever share. Now, the message title today is called Share Your Inheritance, and I want to explain what that means. Because when we think of an inheritance today, our definition of inheritance is different than God's definition of an inheritance. An inheritance for us today is directly connected many times to something that is left for us when someone else passes away. And that's true. And the truth of the matter is, when people pass away and they leave this earth, they pass things down to us. They transfer the ownership because they can't take it with them, right? You can't take it with them. You came into the world butt naked and you're leaving the world butt naked. That's the way that it works. People have tried. I was talking to my kids this week and one of them brought up, they said, you know, remember in Egypt, like they built these huge pyramids and they brought all the stuff with them that they could take into the afterlife when the pharaohs would die so that they had, they had chariots and they had food and they even put servants in with them so they could have them into the afterlife. Can you believe that? And guess what? When they unearthed all of these things thousands of years later, it was all still there. Why? Because you can't take it with you. Reminds me of a story of a man who worked all his life. There's a story of a guy who worked all his life. He saved all of his money and he was a real cheapskate and a tightwad. All his life, he saved everything he had. And he loved money more than just about everything else. So he went to his wife when he knew he was going to die. And he said, I want you to promise me something. When I die, I want you to take all of the money that I have earned and made in the world. And I want you to put it in my casket so I can take it with me when I die. That's what he said. It's absolutely true story. I read it on the internet. So (laughs) this is what happened. So he got his wife to promise him that he would do that. Okay. And with all of her heart, she said, as a good Christian woman, I'm going to do that. So the day comes, he dies, he's laid out in the casket. Everything's getting ready to, take, take, to wrap everything up. The undertakers come and they take everything and they're getting ready to close the casket. And she says, wait a minute, wait a minute. And she takes this big box and she brings this box and she puts it in the casket and they close the casket and they take it away. And her friends look at her and say, I hope you weren't crazy enough to actually put all of that money in that casket, all the money that he saved. Are you insane? And she looked at him and she's like, well... He asked me to promise, and I promised. And I'm a good Christian woman, and I can't lie. I did it. And they said, you put every cent of his money in the casket? And she said, I did. I did. I got it all together. I put it in my account, and I wrote him a check. (laughs) Isn't that great? What's my point? The world's definition of an inheritance transfers something of value to the people left behind, right? That's not a godly definition of an inheritance. Do you know why? Because when I'm no longer of this earth, I don't lose what Jesus gave me. I take it with me. We don't leave an inheritance in God's kingdom, church. We share in our inheritance. You take the thing that God has given you and you multiply it. There's a reason why the story of feeding the 5,000 is in the scripture. And it's not just because Jesus knows how to do cool things with food. The multiplication of the loaves is a great example of how the way we multiply and we share our inheritance grows the kingdom of God. We're not transferring our inheritance to someone else. And when we're no longer of this world, we are devoid of it. And now they own it. No, we're increasing the capacity. The kingdom grows. The family of God grows. And why? Something that was departed or something that was planted in me can be planted in someone else. And they both grow. 
And then when I'm no longer in this world and I no longer have the ability to live in this world, I don't breathe anymore in this world, I still take that inheritance, go before my maker one day, and he hopefully will look at me and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Oh, and by the way, all the seeds you planted with the people that are there, they're growing too. Your ownership is still, now you're a son and daughter, and now they're son and daughters, and it continues to grow. You see how that works? That's why Paul made this the priority. That's why Jesus, because he tried to get their eyes off of something. And we are so good in this world about leaving the inheritance. Think about all these students that were up here this morning. And I love, don't you love seeing all the kids up here? And whether they're little kids or adults, doesn't matter. Don't you love that? I love it. I absolutely love it. And I love the honesty of these kids. When I grow up, I want to make people eat food they don't want to eat. That's, that's gold. I wrote it down. I'm going to use it someday. That's gold. But some of the kids, they're all like, I'm going to be a vet. I'm going to be a vet. I'm going to be a vet. I want you to eat food that I've never, I don't like to eat. I'm, I'm like, oh, this is cool the way that this all works. But you know, I sit there in the, the seat and I watch all that and I think to myself this. The world is great at raising up our kids. We teach them from the time they're little children to the time they're adults. We pour into them systematically every single year. Kindergarten, first grade, second, third, fourth, 10th, 11th, 12th college, graduate level, doctoral level, pour in, pour in, pour in, pour in. And when their day comes and they are gone, they lose all ownership of what they spent their entire life investing in. It doesn't mean they didn't make an impact where they are, but they can't take it with them. But what if at the same time as we're watching these kids here, it's great that they're graduating, but I was looking at them thinking, what have they learned in children's ministry? What have they learned in student ministry? As they're adults and they're in graduate work, are they actually walking the journey and letting God be who he needs to be in their lives when they're in graduate school or when they go into the public schools or what they do? Or was church something that they were taught as a family to check a box, do the thing, it's the pastor's responsibility to raise them up and encourage them, and the parents are so consumed with their own selfish whatever that they don't grow their kids in the way they need to be grown. I'm challenging you on this because we all have to look introspectively and look at that. And I'm specifically Thank God I'm not speaking on Father's Day next week. That's Pastor Jeff's deal. But this week, I'm going to look at it and go, Dads, stop loving the world more than you love your kids spiritually. You know all about sports. You know all about your hobbies, all your hobbies, all the stuff that you love, all the things you want to fill. Listen, practical things are wonderful, but they're all gone when we die. And Jesus said it in a different way. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Do you want to forfeit your life eternally because you spend all of your time training, raising up, educating your kids for the world so that when the day comes, they actually look at a relationship with Jesus and Jesus says, you have all the degrees or you have all the experience or you're really good at trades, but I never knew you. Why is that the priority of our world sometimes? And especially within the Christian church. Within the Christian church, men struggle with this. Well, maybe it wasn't modeled to you. You know what? That's okay. Because the truth of the matter is, a lot of guys I talk with over the years, it wasn't modeled well. And if you grew up in a situation where there was a direct influence in your home, where your dad was a spiritual leader and led your family in a way where the Bible was the most important thing that he walked out and not just read scripture, but actually interpreted it for you. If that's where you're at, you're not alone. There are a lot of men that have struggled with that because it wasn't modeled well. Sure, they can mow a lawn. Sure, they can fix a car. Sure, they can go to school or they paid for their colleges. And those things are all important things, right? That's what good parents will do too. Love their kids, raise them up in the practical things. 
but may they never take priority over the spiritual. And just because it wasn't given to you doesn't mean that you can't give it away because you're never too old to learn something new. Discipleship is the focus. And if you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't know how to do this, I don't know where to start, we're going to start. And I'm going to give you a couple real brief things right out of 2 Timothy that you could look at that I'm going to talk just very briefly about in the interest of time this morning. Going back to chapter 3, verse 10, this is what Paul said to Timothy. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, not yet, my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endure, yet the Lord rescued me for all of them. The things you can focus on to become a follower of Christ and disciple other people are all listed right here in this verse. What are they? To be a disciple maker? The first, teaching. Paul says to Timothy, you know about my teaching. What was he teaching? The word of God. What was he teaching? He was teaching what he learned from Jesus passed down. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament, probably had it memorized. He had the Old Testament deeply planted in his heart, and he had an experience where he walked with Jesus. His teaching was what Timothy was able to draw from, where today we have Scripture, and really Scripture is the biggest way that we should teach. The Word of God is the most important thing. If you want to be a disciple maker, you need to know the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have a degree in it. It doesn't mean you have to go to seminary or you need to memorize 100,000 verses. It means you have to know something about God's word, meditate on it, and then make it part of your life. Bring God's word into your life. Don't disqualify yourself, men and women. Don't disqualify yourself because you don't know as much about God's word as a person sitting next to you. You just need to know God's word, and if you take one step, God will walk alongside you the whole way. Does that make sense? The word of God is the most important thing. That's the first thing he said to Timothy. The next thing he said was, my way of life. You know all about my teaching and my way of life. What is he talking about, way of life? He's talking about his actions and his behaviors. He didn't just hear what Paul said. He watched what Paul did. His behavior, his actions. Can I tell you over the course of the years that I've pastored in this church and even before that when I was a volunteer and even other churches, I could tell you over the years, students that I knew when they got out of high school would walk away from the church. Not all of them, and I couldn't do it 100%, but it was evident in a few situations over the years that I would look at because I could tell that their parents did not walk the walk that they were talking. So as soon as kids got out of school, as soon as they got out of the space and they said, I can do whatever I want. They ran because the church was appalling to them. It was nauseating to them. Why? Because what mom and dad did or said outside of the church didn't really resonate with what they were trying to teach within the church. So what happened is that Christianity got the stamp of disapproval as opposed to the family. Jesus isn't the problem. We're the problem. The behavior, the way of life is important. And let me just say this clearly as well. If you are an imperfect person, raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But in your heart, raise your hand. We're all going to raise our hand. We all make mistakes. We all need to start over. We need to hit this reset button. Saying you're sorry, asking for forgiveness to God and to those around you is an important first step in changing your way of life. 
So if what you're doing is not honoring to God or honoring to your family, call it what it is. Don't just sweep it under the carpet and do something different. Identify it. Say what it is. Move on. Let God fill in the gaps. There's something about genuine forgiveness, I mean, a repentance and seeking forgiveness that God uses. He doesn't need you to be perfect. He just wants you to be honest. You can start right where you are. Your way of life matters. What else does Paul say? My purpose. You know all about my purpose. What did this come back down to? His mission in life. Paul's mission was not to become wealthy, not to become a ruler over something, not to become well-known and have notoriety. His mission was to do the work of God. The people around us know what our mission is. Even if you're a successful businessman or a teacher, an engineer, if you work in the trades, it doesn't matter. You can be great at those things and you can have a passion and a love for that, but people can still see if your hunger is to do that over your hunger is to know and to love God. It's evidence. It doesn't mean you have to be a vocational minister to love God more than your job. No, be excellent at what you do. Be a light around you, but people can tell you that's a person who is, it's kind of like a musician. I've heard this many times over the years when I would, there's a couple concerts I would go to, and I remember talking to one guy years ago, and I, and I incorrectly said the term, but I was like, you know, I love listening to Christian musicians. Um, and he said, I'm not a Christian musician. I'm a musician who's a follower of Christ. And there was a difference. You know the difference was? Every song didn't say, Jesus, I love you. You're amazing. You're great. Jesus, I love you. And I'm proselytizing. He said he went into the world and he acted and loved people around him who didn't know anything about Jesus because to them, he was the only Jesus they ever really met. And that's what him and his band did. And I thought that was really, really cool. And if you want to know who it is, I'll tell you later, but I'm not telling you now. But you wouldn't be surprised. They knew the mission. What else? His faith. They knew all about the faith. They knew all about their faith. What is faith? I'm just going to boil it down. Our belief. And how do we know that someone's belief is real? Because our actions align with what we say. If your belief is something that matters to you, people will see by the way that you live. If you say you believe it, then you're going to do it. And if you don't do it, then you really don't believe it. So you have to believe it and you have to do it. So Paul didn't just show him faith with words. He showed faith with his actions. This next one, I love this one. Patience. If you want to be a discipler, patience. You observe my patience. Can I tell you, discipling people is hard work. And we're sheep, the Bible says, which means we're kind of dumb. We are. You can look at the person next to you and go, you're a sheep. And they'll look at you and go, you're a sheep. Don't, you don't have to do it. But I'm just saying, he uses the term sheep. Have you ever seen? Sheep are stupid. They need to be told the same thing over and over again. But here's what I do know. When they're trained, they hear their, 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 their shepherd's voice. And they follow their shepherd's voice. How many times have I heard people say, not in the spiritual world, but in the real physical world, I'm tired of teaching people. I'm tired of doing this with people. They just keep doing the same thing. I'm giving all of my time, and I'm not giving that anymore because they just waste it. Can I tell you, if you feel that way within the Christian church, get used to it. Because whatever percentage of time that God actually encourages you or challenges you to pour into someone else's life, it's not always going to be a one-to-one return. It doesn't work that way. He might call you to plant seeds for decades and decades and decades, and you may look back sometimes and go, does this even matter? Have I even made a difference in people's lives? And I'm not telling you that because I heard other people say that. I say that all the time in my heart. And I go, does this even matter? Are we even making a difference sometimes? And people shake their head and they go back and they still look like hell. Like, does it matter? And then God looks at me and says, what about you? You've heard it. You've heard it more so than other people. Paul, what are you doing? 
How many times do I come back to you and I comfort you and I encourage you and I show you in patience what it means to follow a loving father? Are you with me? So important for us to understand to be a discipler, we need to take time and we need to continue to be willing to have the same problems happen over and over and over again. And when we're impatient, we don't demonstrate the heart of a loving father. That doesn't mean that we don't put healthy boundaries in place because there are times that you have to just say enough is enough in these things. But we become so impatient sometimes expecting people to perform and to do things in a way that we don't hold ourselves to, right? Love, I'm just going to mention this briefly, love. What kind of love are we talking about? Not Gucci Gucci kind of love. I'm talking about sacrificial love. Paul gave his life for those churches. He gave his life for Timothy. He laid his life down. It was without question the amount of love he had was a self-sacrificing kind of love. That's how you make disciples. Endurance, we already talked about this. What kind of the endurance is he talking about? He's talking about not quitting when it gets hard. Not quitting when it gets hard. Well, God didn't give me this thing that I wanted, and now I'm done with God. You know what? Grow up. And I'm talking to myself here. I'm not talking to you specifically. But how many times have I thought that in my life? You know, it just didn't work out the way that I wanted to. God, you really let me down this. I told someone the other day, I said, I was talking to someone and they said, you know what? Um, Because they said, oh, I felt like, you know, I got hit by a bus. And I said, ah, did you feel like you got hit by the bus and was Jesus driving the bus? You ever feel like that sometimes? That you actually get hit by a bus in a spiritual sense and you look back and you think Jesus is driving the bus? What does that mean? It means that you're saying that he's the one responsible for the problem that you're dealing with. That's not true. He's there to meet us and to walk through it. And when things get difficult, he gives us the strength through his Holy Spirit to endure. Even when it gets hard, don't quit. Even when the people that you're pouring into or around you want to let go, want to deal, want to walk away, say things to you that hurt you, don't quit if God continues to encourage you to walk alongside them. Don't quit. Here's why I know you shouldn't quit, because you wouldn't want someone quitting on you. I don't want people quitting on me. You're hopeless. No. Don't quit. It doesn't mean that you, have to, you can't put boundaries in place, but it does mean sometimes we just need to say, the door is always open and I'm not going to quit. A discipler is someone who doesn't quit. And the last part of this is persecution and sufferings. Expect to be misunderstood. Expect to be strung up. Expect to be unpopular at times. Isn't this an encouraging message? <laughs> Expect these things. You say, why? Because we're not talking about physical discipling church we're talking about spiritual discipling there is a battle that goes on for the war a war that goes on for the souls of men and why would we think for a moment that that battle would not result in persecution and warlike uh, situations that we need to fight through and recognize if we are going to speak truth and live truth to the world around us it's going to come at a cost that we have to pay that's important progressive christianity forget it prosperity gospel. I follow Jesus and I'm going to be a millionaire. Don't listen to it. It doesn't mean you can't. It doesn't mean that he won't bless you with those things, but if he does, he's going to give you some wisdom on how to navigate that and what you should do with all the resources he's given you. Because I firmly don't believe he allows people or he should have people or he wants people to experience and have all these resources at their their disposal so they can just be selfless and do what they want to do with their life. That's not biblical. He says, if your mind is focused on me Whatever it is I bless you with, time, skill, resources, whatever, use it to pour into others for an eternity, an inheritance that lasts for eternity. Our worship team is going to come here in just a moment here, and we're not going to close in a song. They're going to to play a song in just a moment. And I just want to take a few moments with you this morning, and I just want to share this with you and ask you, how do you end a message like this? 
We could sing a song. We could say, come up and be prayed for. Sometimes you can't box things up and package them up in nice little bows. Sometimes you just need to leave space and you need to say, what was said was said. I hope you got to hear my heart on what God is speaking to us. And remember that the greatest value that's been ever given to you, the thing of greatest value that's been given to you is to know Jesus Christ, is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ so that you can grow in that relationship and that you can help share in that inheritance with others. So I just want you to think about two things this morning. The team's gonna play quietly. We are gonna open the altars up. Our prayer people are gonna come up to the front now if I could just ask them to please come and join me. But during this time for the next few moments as the team sings, can you consider please two questions? Number one, who is God speaking to you about discipling? I want you to think about that this morning. Who is God speaking to you about discipling? If you are a follower of Christ, there is an answer to that question. Because if you don't know Jesus, you can't disciple someone with Jesus. You need to know him first. Who is God speaking to you to disciple? And I want you to reflect on that this morning. It may be a person. It may be people. Here's what I want to hear, though, in your heart. Don't cop out and just say, well, I'm only called to disciple my kids because it's true but it's incomplete wherever you work wherever you go our eyes can be open to things around and discipleship doesn't mean you have to sit down with someone in a book it means you give them and you share your inheritance of Christ who are the faces the places the people that God is challenging with this morning to say I want to be a discipler Lord what are the names the faces the people that you want me to actually share the love of Christ with and be a discipler. That's what I want you to think about just for a moment. And then the second question is, of all the things I mentioned from verse 10, what area is he's asking you to develop? And this is why this question is really important. Because if every one of us, by definition, becomes a discipler, it also means that someone's going to disciple us. He doesn't just call us to teach and to love other people. If that's what we all do, know this. He might be asking you to share in something you've been given, but he's then going to ask somebody else to share with you what they've been given. So it's not just about how I can serve or share with others. It's am I humble and teachable so that the areas in my life that need to grow, someone else can help me grow in those as well. Does that make sense? It's so important to recognize. You see, the Apostle Paul was a great discipler, but he was also a great student. So God wants us to give away and share, but he also wants us to learn. So as the team sings this song, just for a few moments, you could bow your heads, you can come up and have someone pray for you. Can we just take a few moments and reflect on this and recognize the beautiful opportunity God has given us to share the inheritance he's given us this morning?